0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Danielle Allen, who is a faculty member at Harvard, as well as wearing many, many, many hats. I often read her columns in the Washington Post on democracy and civic engagement, but I'm going to ask Danielle to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. The book we're talking about today is Justice by Means of Democracy, which was published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press, Um, but it followed quickly on the heels of her most recent previous book, Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, which was also published by the University of Chicago Press. But before we dive into the books and the ideas, Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this topic and project?
2: Sure. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here, and I really appreciate it. So when folks ask me what I work on, I always say the same thing, just democracy, past, present, and future thereof, and no question mark at the end of that. And that's true for me inside the university and outside the university. So it's true for my teaching and research. It's also true. I run an organization called Partners in Democracy, which is an advocacy organization. I come by this commitment and focus. Completely honestly, it's just a matter of family inheritance. So on my dad's side, my granddad helped found one of the first NAACP chapters in northern Florida in the 40s. So that was super dangerous. You know, lynchings were on the rise at the time. On my mom's side, my great grandparents helped fight for women's right to vote. And my great grandmother ended up as president of the League of Women Voters in Michigan in the 30s which is awesome. Exactly. So, um, so that were, you know, people who on both sides were told something was impossible, you know, like social equality for African-Americans was impossible or the vote for women was impossible. Their answer was no, not only is it not impossible, it's necessary. And the only question is how? So I'm from folks who for generations have loved and fought for democracy. And in truth, they were also engaged all across the political spectrum I sort of allude to this in the sort of uh, acknowledgments to the book or the afterward, but you know, there's this one year when I was a young person, 1992, when I had um, my aunt running for Congress in the Bay Area on the Peace and Freedom ticket. And my dad was running for Senate from Southern California as a Reagan Republican. So they used to have really intense arguments. They were very different people. You know, my dad is Skinny, always, you know, had sort of wreath of pipe smoke curling around his head, very professorial. My aunt was a really big woman, sort of built like a Mack truck, huge belly laugh. She was gay. They just used to go at it, you know, hammer and tongs and um, just different arguments. So it became clear to me that they agreed on the project of empowerment for themselves, for their families, for their communities, and then massively disagreed on how to get there. You know, market liberties or public sector investments across all segments of society saving for Jews or experiments in living. So that was a real sort of education for me in democracy, a sort of education in a shared purpose, self-government for free and equal citizens, that project of empowerment, and then a sense of like what the parameters of debate were about the how, and both sort of economic questions and social questions. And so I sort of took democracy for granted in all honesty as a young person. Um, And it wasn't until I was watching my own generation come up in the world that it all became a lot more sort of pointed and uh, more personal. So my parents' generation has all sort of moved up, um, economically speaking. So my granddad was a fisherman. Kids were small business owners and professors. On the other side, factory workers and then accountants. Um, But my generation has lived through, or our generation, um, we've lived through what I call the great pulling apart. So in my personal case, that means here I sit as a tenured faculty member at an elite institution. Got a brother who's a corporate executive. But at the same time, I have dead cousins, um, homicide, substance use disorder. And what I have sort of lived through, our generation has lived through and my family has sort of paralleled what the whole country has experienced over the course of my lifetime, you know, sort of 50 plus years. So my lifetime has perfectly paralleled the rise of income inequality in the country, wealth inequality, incarceration, polarization. So it was when I lost my youngest cousin, Michael, in 2009 that it really sort of stopped me in my tracks and I asked myself the question, you know, democracy is not supposed to be abstractly good. It's not just supposed to sort of, you know, make us say these words, freedom and equality. If it's going to be worth its promise, it has to actually make it possible for generational cohorts to move forward together and for communities to find a path towards flourishing. So I started asking myself the question of how can we change the dynamics in which our democracy is sort of like enabling this great pulling apart and get to a place where our democracy is actually again like letting generational cohorts kind of pull together and advance together and that took me much deeper into political economy um, than I had been in previously and at the same time I mean all along the way of my career obviously I've been working in political theory and political philosophy and John Rawls has always been a huge monument on the landscape and ever since I first encountered him as a student, I've always known he sort of ever so slightly got on my nerves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know that you're the only one. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, yeah, and I
2: said that with all due respect. I mean, obviously, it was really a huge accomplishment, huge achievement, theory of justice. But something was bugging me all along. And when it, was, it was really when I started to dig into these questions about the relationship between democracy and justice after the death of my cousin that it finally became clear to me what was bugging me. And it was the simple thing that although Rawls asserts that he's going to treat the sort of positive liberties, the freedoms to participate, to be a co-director um, of the public body, um, he, he's gonna, he, he asserts that he's going to treat that on par with um, his sort of affirmation of the negative liberties the right to be free from governmental interference in our private lives. But in truth, that's not what happens over the course of his argument. Um, the positive liberties, empowerment and participation are routinely sacrificed. And so I started asking myself the question, like, what would a theory of justice look like if you considered the positive liberties just as non- non-sacrificable as the negative liberties? And so this book, Justice by Means of Democracy, is basically an answer to that question. And what matters about it to me is that that answer entails a very different approach to a political economy than we've had for the last 50 years, a different approach to social policy, as well as a sort of reviving of a real commitment to meaningful, uh, comprehensive democracy in the political sphere.
1: And, of course, that's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, and, and one of the first things that I was struck by as I was reading through your book was, in fact, the sort of initial engagement with economics and particularly these questions about the market and the role of the market within a democracy and in capacity to reach human flourishing, as you talk about the aim that we're sort of looking at. Um, and, and you know, a lot of times political theorists don't necessarily start with economics um, or Economists don't necessarily start with political theory. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about how economics came forward as you were just talking about it when we're talking about these questions of justice and democracy?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I mean, sometimes it's a little hard to disentangle the different strands. And I think for me, it started um, probably actually with my book, our declaration, um, or which was about the declaration of independence. And, um, in that book, I spent a lot of time talking about equality and political equality specifically. But it was interesting because when I, that was a very sort of public oriented book, a sort of public audience. And when I would go around to give talks about it, it was just, it blew my mind (laughs) how often people would sort of say to me, Oh, you're invoking the ideal of equality. Doesn't that mean you're a communist or a socialist? (laughs) And I was like, we're talking about the integration of independence people. I mean, you know, it's got equality right in it. So how can we not see that equality is a concept that makes sense in the context of U.S. history, in the context of democracy, even in the context of our economy? And so that led me, sort of at the same time, I was also sort of registering the way so much social science um, was objecting to inequality, and but never sort of specifying what the goal was, right? We were crit- critiquing inequality, left and right, mainly income and wealth inequality. Um, and we had an easy time sort of saying inequality is a problem, but we had a very hard time saying what the actual goal was. And so I sort of put these two pieces together and realized that something had kind of gone wrong in terms of our ability to understand the ideal of equality in the first instance, and then secondly the question of how political institutions and our ideals for them relate to economic um, issues and political economy. So I ran a seminar series at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton called Equalities. And the purpose of it was to just ask people to come and think about what it was we were actually seeking when we were critiquing inequality and to sort of play out what were the social questions, what were the economic questions, what were the political questions, and then sort of where did philosophy have a role across those? And I think that's the point at which that was probably in maybe 2011, 2012-ish, something like that. I think that's the point at which, for me, the political economy questions came to be fully engaged um, as necessary.
1: And and again, these questions of political economy, you know, Marx basically has this as the basis of, you know, his argument for equality, but you're not going there um, because that's not, the point of the question of inequality. Um, it is a component, as you say in the book, but it is not the end goal. Um, well,
2: I mean, I guess just to to pitch in a little bit there, I mean I think one of the things I've been trying really hard to do is just to invite people to really think about the different categories of equality. So political equality is a distinct thing and social equality is a distinct thing. And economic equality or egalitarianism is a distinct thing. And so at the end of the day, I mean, I am, as you know from the book, I'm prioritizing political equality by making the case that you can't have that without economic egalitarianism. So you don't need strict material equality in the economic realm, but you do need egalitarianism.
1: And so I wanted to then step back into the sort of question of Rawls because the critique of Rawls is part of the foundation of the book um and what you are looking for is similar to what Rawls was looking for in terms of a theory of justice um and you are not though going behind the veil of ignorance and because the veil of ignorance doesn't provide some of the background information that your conceptualization of justice and equality need Can you talk a little bit about that critique of Rawls and where you're going from there? Sure. So, I mean,
2: in some sense,
1: our projects are very
2: similar in the sense that we're both trying to identify principles that support the flourishing of human societies. And the difference between the two of us on that point is that I embrace the sort of flourishing concept, whereas you know, Rawls in some sense had a more constrained uh, end that he was seeking with his basic principles. And then the question is, of course, how does each of us find our principles? He uses the veil of ignorance, reflective equilibrium, a sort of Kantian procedures. And I instead use what are basically a sort of merger of pragmatist and eudaimonistic procedures. So um, I take good evidence for where principles have succeeded in the past as a basis for adopting them in the present. I include Rawls's principles in that, so there's a sense of which I'm partially sort of baking in and adopting his use of the veil of ignorance. I just think it doesn't get us everywhere that we need, primarily because what the veil of ignorance does is exactly obscure the question of how to think about power by taking power out of the question. And I don't think you can do that, so I think you also need... Some basic principles for thinking about power. For me, that leads to the view that the, the result, the sort of set of principles um, that we start with, have to include in a commitment to power sharing. So, who is available ignorance yields a uh, commitment to a set of rights. Um, and I em- embrace those and adopt them, but then also add onto it the requirement for power sharing. So um, I sort of replaced the veil of ignorance with power sharing, in effect, Um, two different ways of trying to solve the problem of power, like you can pretend it's not there, or you can decide we've got to share power. So hence, I sort of label my framework power sharing liberalism, um, and I think that speaks as well to this sort of layered approach where I am partially folding Rawls in, but then also drawing on other traditions to address Things that I've identified as errors um, in his view,
1: and in this question of power sharing in terms of setting up societies that are aiming towards justice or trying to pursue justice, this is political. If if power is moved out of the equation, then you're sort of stepping outside of politics. Um, and so, in terms of the layered approach to this concept of power sharing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other thinkers who you are integrating into this idea of power sharing? Because you're drawing from both ancient and contemporary thinking.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. So um, in terms of the contemporary, I do draw a lot on recent philosophical work and on the sort of last two centuries of African-American political thought. So from the point of view of recent philosophical work, the really important thinkers for me are Philip Pettit, Amartya Sen, and Elizabeth Anderson. Um, They are all people who see political empowerment as at the center of whether or not you're going to be able to build out a just society. And they each understand and articulate the connection between democracy or political structures that provide non-domination and actual material justice. They're super, super helpful. I've learned a lot from them and really build on foundations that they established. Then there's, again, a sort of long tradition of African-American political thought. In the sort of 20th century, for me, Ralph Ellison and Martin Luther King Jr. have been particularly influential. Um, But Melvin Rogers' recent book, The Dark and Light of Faith, is a great, great sort of overview of all of the work in the 19th century. And the African-American thinkers just consistently kept their eye on the ball when it came to thinking about power. Um, And so that's the thing that sort of distinguishes that tradition and a point about it that I think sort of, you know, we all have a lot to learn from. And, you know, I I look forward to the day when those insights are fully integrated into the whole of our philosophical tradition.
1: Um, And at the the beginning of the book, though, you do talk a bit about Aristotle. Um, And, you know, given my my particular training in ancient political theory, um, you also conclude by talking about Plato's Republic. Um, and you sort of posit a bit more around Aristotle than the Platonists or, or Plato Socrates. Can you explain how I, Aristotle's conceptions of the polity are, are kind of at the base of what you're building upon?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, for sure. So, um, I mean, as you know, it's funny how projects come together and they're often little, you know, different moments of insight that you kind of link together um, and there can be surprising connections. So for me, a particularly important moment in the development of this argument came on a panel I was on the day after the 2016 election, the Trump election. And it was just sort of one of those post-election panels where you have a historian and economist and a political philosopher, right? And we're all supposed to be digesting the events and making sense of them. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, I, so, anyway, the economist and I were chatting before the panel began, began. And he said, You know, we economists, we always knew that it was going to take 20 plus years for globalization to work its way through the economic system. But I have to admit, it wasn't until yesterday watching the election results but I stopped to think about what that would feel like for somebody who was living through those 20 years of change. And I was like, (laughs) that's the issue right there. And it's that sort of contrast between universalizing a theory and real, and a real ability to, to see a place in its specificity and to see human life in context. And that also kind of captures the difference between Plato and Aristotle So, I really, really appreciate Aristotle's attention to detail, basically, to the questions of how demographic facts and cultural facts and the the specifics of the organization of a particular city or jurisdiction uh, really affect the dynamics of power and possibility, really affect the question of material realities, really affect, you know, sort of modes of decision making types of judgment that people bring to problems. So I was trying to recover that to sort of help us put social science on a sort of footing that's you know better connected to places and people in context and not so you know hard not not having so much difficulty seeing all that specificity.
1: And and I mean I I I really found it fascinating the way that you brought in all of these these thinkers all the way along um, throughout the book because your focus is not just on this abstract question of justice, but also on the abstraction that is democracy. And you, you very adroitly to point out how difficult this concept is. And believe me, every semester when I go in and I say, okay, democracy is ruled by the people. That's what it translates from the Greek into, what does that mean? And all my students are like, we get to vote. Right. <laughs> but you suggest it's both more conceptually complicated and also something that we need to figure out how to understand.
2: That's right. Exactly. I do think that an important part of the practice of democratic citizenship is some internalization, honestly, of some of the abstractions that hold the concept of democracy together. That's a very demanding thing to say, right? Because like most human beings definitely do not move around the world wanting to engage in abstractions. So it's a sort of strange thing that that's what we ask of ourselves. You know, that is when we say it's rule of the people, it's your will, and so forth. Um, we people have to make sense of that in a context in which what they literally today, you know, Monday at one thirty p.m. want. Is not gonna anywhere remotely come out the pipeline of collective decisions, right? So like how on earth does one hold those two facts together and have a sense of legitimacy around it? I mean, only abstraction holds that together. So um I do think that means there's a very high burden for civic education in a democracy, you know, because people do have to keep holding those two things together. And yet the paradox is, you know, you can actually only get to self-government. So steering your own life, but also contributing to collective steering uh, through this unusual vehicle of democracy. So we actually do need to ask that abstraction of ourselves in order to have the treasure of self-government.
1: And and so one of the questions that I was reading through your book, which is very beautifully written and carefully written, you, you take the reader through step by step, is, okay, I maybe on a good day understand the abstraction of democracy, um, maybe can convey some of that to my students. Um, but then I see people protesting in the street, um, storming the Capitol. And, and I'm thinking to myself, what is their concept of democracy? Right, right.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I mean, first to say that it is very striking just as a matter of the historical record that folks who stormed the Capitol understood themselves to have a kind of revolutionary responsibility. They understood themselves to be needing to preserve something from an illegitimate, um, event. Um, so that obviously poses a sort of hard question of what to do when people kind of get the wrong end of the stick in terms of, understanding where democracy is and what its health is. Um, so I mean I guess the the challenge is, um, you know, how does how do we as a society um, keep the sort of processes for operating a democracy and for for contestation um, sound enough with enough um, accessibility to all participants so that they make sense that they are experienced as legitimate and the like? When you lose that, then you do have this fragile situation that you end up with, um, you know, existentially incompatible understandings of, of democracy and whether you have a legitimate system. So that was a mouthful. I'm sorry. Um, that was more abstractions. But I think what I'm trying to say is something along the lines of um, democracies have to work at each of the different jurisdictional levels um, at a kind of concrete level for people to to have a belief about legitimacy of the whole. So when I watched the January 6th uprising, to me, it was a real indicator that we have let a lot of breakage um, creep in. Um, a lot of people are not kind of connected routinely to processes that they experience as legitimate. Um, and that builds up that sort of split.
1: And and part of what you're talking about in the book is how to kind of knit that back together. Uh, and And so before we get there, I did want to ask you about some of the framing that you provide um, that is something connected to the January 6th issue, but you'd note that over the past 15, 20 years there have been a lot of surprises in democracies and we shouldn't have been surprised, Um, which goes to, to some degree, as you say, some of the breakages that are creeping into um, sort of disconnect people from different levels of of democrat, democratic institutions and their their lived experience um, can you talk about how those surprises um, what they are and why they sort of came forward as you were considering all of this
2: sure um well so the trump election itself was one of those also brexit um but also things like the 2008 global recession, which, um, you know, obviously was we, the sort of financial system had become so opaque um, with derivatives and all the like and the housing, um, mortgage asset backed sec- securities and the like. Um, but it's funny because if you go back to that 2008 one, I don't know about you, but I had the distinct feeling I I was in Chicago at the time. I remember sort of driving around the city of Chicago and watching all the construction and just thinking to myself, I do not see how there could be that many people who can afford units priced at this level. And I know other, like I have heard other people say similar kinds of things. So there was this sort of sense in which experientially, a lot of us had the knowledge about what was happening. But that experiential knowledge of what the reality was, was really disconnected from what policymakers had visibility into. And that just has been true over and over and over again, that there's a disconnect between what policymakers are looking at and what um, people could communicate (laughs) if given a kind of actual vehicle for communicating their knowledge and understanding of the world. Globalization is similar. Right, where again, sort of the economists had one picture of what was happening. They knew people were going to lose jobs, so they sort of kept talking about retraining and reskilling, but didn't take the time to sort of hear what people's actual experience was of this sort of injunction to retrain and reskill and the like. And then everybody who was watching the opioid epidemic explode could see exactly what was actually happening, right, in that experience of transition. Um, so that's what I sort of am trying to get at by surprises. And the kind of shared theme across all these surprises is that some meaningful gap of perspective has developed between policymakers and on the ground lived experience. And I take it that that gap is kind of indication of a failure of democratic practice. So when I talk about, yes, how, you know, how we design 21st century democracy, I'm trying to make sure that we get ourselves to a place where those kinds of gaps can't emerge.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
1: and and this is often characterized in the popular press and and in you know trying to understand like how trump won or how brexit happened um by this sort of question of elites versus the common person um And and so there's there is a gap in perspective if the people who are making the policies don't, in fact, have a connection to the the ordinary citizen, um, which is something that going back to the early days of our republic, as you well know, was something that the Jeffersonians in particular were concerned about. Um, And so is it baked in or how do we solve that?
2: Yeah, I don't think it has to be baked in, and so I mean another a thing, one we often hear that the sort of split between a- elites and ordinary Americans, and I think that's accurate. Another thing though that we often hear, which is sometimes like the elite version of that, is you know all those people are voting against their interests where they don't understand their own interest, and it's because elites have that view that I think it's not baked in, but is actually symptomatic of a culture that's developed among elites. Um, so, you know, when I hear that, what I hear elites communicating is um, a policymaking paradigm, uh, typically a neoliberal policymaking paradigm, which is based on the idea that what matters is a combination of protecting negative liberties, freedom of conscience and religion and material security. And that, like, as long as you have that, you should basically consider yourself okay. You shouldn't need anything else. Whereas, actually, people seek, desire, thrive on empowerment as well. And so I think the sort of notion and so people will choose the path of empowerment over their material interests, that's the sort of really important point of the sort of theory of justice that I'm laying out. And that's a point that, you know, our elite policymakers have really not had access to in recent years because they've been working in accord with another paradigm. so But paradigms are changeable. That's the sense in which I don't think it's baked in. I don't think that flows from our institutions. I think that flows from our political philosophy, our economic theory, and the like. And so that's where I think there's a chance to change it.
1: And that's what you're laying out in the book, is like where these particular threads kind of got baked together um, and how we can potentially re-cook them to kill this metaphor um and 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 so part of it is though you have to you have to teach people not you personally but people need to be taught to be engaged right or have to be
2: motivated to to re-engage i mean so sometimes i think it's more motivation necessarily than than education but and I should back up and say one thing, though, because I do want to acknowledge that there there are ways in which that kind of technocratic elite perspective, you know, ha- was baked in or has been baked in and has been consistently critiqued. So if, just to go back for one beat in the conversation, um, you know, the book includes sort of exchange between John Adams and Abigail Adams about the kind of frame of government being established in 1776 And Abigail's concern was about what she saw as a kind of split or dissonance between the stated principles that her husband, John, and others were adopting in the spring of 1776 and the actual politics. So, um, you know, she sort of praised the kind of language of rights and so forth and said like, but what about women? Where do women fit in? And John's response was, you know, in rough terms, um, these principles apply to everybody, you know, sort of securing life, liberty, and happiness. But with regard to how we organize the powers of government, right, for that, his words were, we're going to use our masculine system. And um, Abigail objected to that on the grounds that if you reserve power to some, they will inevitably come to abuse it. So even if they've been given kind of benevolent paternalistic charge, absolute power corrupts, and they will abuse that. And so her prediction was that women would have to, in her words, foment a rebellion for voice and representation. And so in that regard, she was making the point that they were kind of baking in this, error of thinking that you could protect the negative liberties for people and their material interests while preserving power for only some. And her view was that that's impossible. If you're going to protect rights for all, you have to give power to all. Everybody has to have voice and representation. So in that regard, the kind of problem that then has gotten connected to 20th century and early 21st century to technocracy was sort of baked in at the beginning. So I'm slightly, re- you know, revising my previous answer to you. But.
1: Um, and, and, I mean, so this conversation or this engagement between John and Abigail Adams, which was more specifically centered on questions of gender equality, of course, also obscures the original sin um, that the country was founded on, which was essentially a fundamental inequality in human beings. Um, And so I have often taught my students about sort of the result of the Civil War being a shift to engagement with positive liberty as opposed to just the protection of negative liberty, uh, which you you really delineate so wonderfully within the book in terms of the question of what positive liberty is. Again, these are really abstract concepts. Um, and can you sort of provide a little bit of discourse on how we should think about both negative and positive liberty in terms of this question of not only equality but also justice.
2: Sure no I can and I will go back to that 18th century moment actually because it helps because I think it helps brings out why there are different buckets of liberties and what the stakes are. So, it's called co- the 18th century moment was complicated in the sense that um, while there were definitely many who did not accept basic human equality, there were some who did, right? And Abigail was one. And actually John was as well, um, in contrast to some of the Southerners. Although even Jefferson um, did accept human equality. He just thought that, you know, black equality should be protected in Africa and white equality should be protected on the shores. So he's like the original creator of the separate but equal concept. He did actually think that all human beings had rights. He just didn't think they should all be part of the same political system. They shouldn't share power with each other, necessarily. Um, But John and Abigail um, did have a genuine embrace of human equality, and that resulted in John's drawing on the language of the Declaration of Independence in drafting the Massachusetts State Constitution, which um, was then the basis for abolishing enslavement in Massachusetts before the end of the Revolutionary War. So, there was a real connection to that commitment to human equality and an actual freedom project. And of course, there were also African-Americans in Boston and Massachusetts who were pushing for that and driving it forward. So it's not like John did it or something like that, but he did it in partnership with African-Americans, but out of you know a real commitment to equality. But so it's sort of in that regard in 1780, where enslavement is abolished in Massachusetts, that you sort of start to get the battle around positive liberty does that freedom simply mean, you know, economic freedom, the freedom to be in the market, um, the freedom to uh, direct your own private life, or does it also mean the freedom to participate um, as a citizen in the government? And of course, that is then, you know, just deeply disputed for the next 60 years. But it is the absence of the protection of political participation that leaves Black Americans in that late 18th and early 19th century, just completely exposed to the depredations of others. And so it just makes for a crystal clear story about the need for positive liberties to actually be able to run for office, to be able to hold office, to be standing on equal footing as a decision maker for the polity um, as a necessary feature protecting liberty. So the contrast between, you know, free African Americans with no political rights and free African Americans with political rights, like that, gets you the distinction between negative liberties and positive liberties.
1: And 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 again, I think that this is a, a part of the abstract that moves us in the direction of civic engagement. And uh, as as you say, it it doesn't need to be taught. You know, go to school and learn civic engagement, but it's sort of a training that goes back to our ancient ancient forebears. <laughs> um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's sort of like the story I
2: told in the very beginning, right, about generations of my own family all taking empowerment so seriously that they insisted on enacting their own empowerment by participating in the public sphere, right? And they were not going to accept anything short of full participation in the public sphere. That was for them non-negotiable, and it was how they could confirm for themselves that they were fully empowered. So there's a sense in which, for me, the question is always, what would it take to reactivate that desire for empowerment? Um, I was actually visiting this morning with some, there's a program called the Warrior Scholars Project, which does um, a kind of week-long college course for um, enlisted service members and veterans, and um, it's sort of a humanities-based course. They, they do a lot of readings, and they read my book, Our Declaration. And um, we were just talking this morning, and one of the women in the group said, I think the problem that we're really trying to tackle in the country is we've acquired a habit of learned helplessness. And how do we undo that? And I think, I think she was right, actually. I think that's true. Um, we have greater uh, resources for shaping the lives of our communities than we often avail ourselves of.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have done my own work on superheroes, and I think that the superhero narrative has contributed to this kind of learned helplessness because the anticipation is somebody's going to come in and solve climate change
2: right. for exactly. other things. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, somebody, somebody to, right? As ought or somebody oughta fix this kind of language, whereas actually, um, it's on us, and we do have the tools at our disposal. It is amazing around the country how few um, municipal offices, county offices, and things like that um, are contested any longer. And it's it's also amazing how many of them is just plain hard to fill. So we have all this apparatus lying around us for actually steering the direction of our community that um, people are not connected to. Um, Although I honestly do uh, lay the charge on that one back at the door of our political economy, in the sense that our political economy has
1: left people without time for their civic lives and this is again one of the difficulties that we have in terms of prioritizing what in in other contexts and in other times had often been quite important for citizens which is community and civic engagement and so forth Part of what you talk about towards the end of the book in, in the last section um, are the three sort of challenges um, that uh, that we need to think about in terms of sort of moving in the direction of sort of stronger democracy and that will move us towards more human flourishing, more equal human flourishing. So you talk about multitasking citizenship, democracy in the life of the mind or intellectual engagement, and democracy is a relational challenge. Can you explain how these sort of are requirements on some level to sort of move us in the direction of working together in a democracy?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, yes, I mean, I used to, I wrote a book um, years ago already called Talking the Strangers, which made the case for political friendship, um, political friendship being the idea that, and this comes from Aristotle, um, you can interact with strangers as if they're friends, regardless of how you feel about them. And if you do that, you'll be cultivating the virtues needed to sustain a healthy political society. So the relational challenge is really that one about how do you practice political friendship. Um, But when I gave, when I wrote that book and I used to give talks about it, um, people would always say to me, you know, Oh, Danielle, but isn't, you know, civic engagement so tiring and so exhausting and so much work. And I would say, Oh no, no, it's, it's easy. It's wonderful. (laughs) You know, it's just so much fun and you can fit it in and so on. And I've come to realize I was like lying to people, you know, (laughs) that it is hard, actually. And it does take time and it does take energy. And so then that's sort of what led me to more clarity about the first two challenges. The multitasking challenge is that one about time, you know, that we've gotten used to the notion that we have to do better with work-life balance, for instance. And I'm always going around to say to people, actually, the job is how to get to work-life civic balance. And for that, we actually need employers to revisit how they think about employees' time. Um, Firms need to recognize that work-life civic balance is the thing that all their um, employees need. Um, And then we, as human beings, have to have the kind of mental energy to switch gears from professional roles or work roles to civic roles to our personal and intimate roles. And that kind of switching is itself sort of taxing, um, psychologically and intellectually speaking. So, and then the second set of challenges are the intellectual ones, you know, that we were talking about. I mean, the fact that there really is a lot of abstraction in the work of democracy, um, a lot of complexity that you have to kind of bring some sense to for yourself in order to feel empowered to participate. So, those are the the big challenges, I think, of practicing democratic citizenship in the twenty first century.
1: And and this idea of political friendship is one that is oftentimes not thought about or understood in contemporary context. Um, Saladin Ambar just published a book on a number of interracial political friends, um, and it's always been something that I've been intrigued by because of its ancient basis. Um, and And so if you were talking to people who haven't read... Plato's, Phaedrus, or any of those things, how would you sort of explain about this idea of political friendship and why it's important for society?
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I usually, I do when I explain it, I do tend to invoke Aristotle, which may or may not be helpful to people, but at any rate, but what I do is um, introduce people to Aristotle's theory of the virtues. And make the point that um, you know here was this interesting philosopher who had real clarity that living well depends often on hitting a midpoint, a, a mean between two extremes. And I always use courage as the you know easiest and best example. It's the midpoint between being too rash and being cowardly. And so, if you take a burning building, you know um, if there's a burning building. And you know there's people inside and you don't go in, you're cowardly. If you see a burning building and you have no idea if there's anybody in there or not, when you rush in to save them, you're being rash. And so courage is like the right combination of the motivation and the knowledge, right? And then there are people in there, you figure it out, you get in, you get them out. Um, And so the point is just that just as there are virtues that make our personal lives go better in various ways, um, there are also virtues that help our shared life go better. And the most important one is a virtue for how we interact with strangers. Um, and Aristotle describes it as a midpoint between two vices, the vice of being uh, domineering or dominating, like not caring what harm you cause others. And then the vice of being obsequious uh, or asset it, you know, sort of accepting that kind of treatment from others and not pushing back against it, you know, not, not being willing to take up the space you actually deserve. And so the goal is to find that midway point in between um, where we're able to negotiate our differences with others. Um, with equal sense of agency in the relationship. And for whatever reason, I find that that kind of burning building example um, and the fact that you've got these two extremes you're trying to find a midpoint uh, seems to help people start to think about the kind of caliber of relationship um, that we're looking for when we're pursuing political friendship.
1: Um, um, My concern in this regard, um, because I agree with you about the importance of political friendship, is that we have a lot of guns. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. That's my concern too. I kind of, I've been thinking a lot lately that if I am, um, you
2: know, if I had responsibility for setting up another major commission of some kind, American Academy or national commission or whatever, any kind of context, there's one and only one topic we really ought to be pursuing. And that's the problem of violence in our culture. And uh, we are an extremely violent society and just getting more violent by the year, it seems. And, um, you know, it's just very straightforward, as you know, right, from a political theory point of view, um, if your society becomes violent, like you've actually failed in what the whole purpose is of trying to build a shared society, which is to establish the peace that makes it possible for people to to flourish. So I do feel like that issue, I I call it violence as the problem, honestly, rather than guns. I mean, guns make a heck of a lot worse and guns are themselves a problem, so I'm not objecting to that at all. Um, But I do think that the deep problem that we have to tackle is the problem of violence uh, in our culture and society where where from, why and how to change that dynamic.
1: Yes, I, I agree with you that it's I mean gun, guns are one component but it is the sort of violence towards other people um, in very in varied ways that is difficult
2: And so much worse uh, now than it was. 50 years ago, you know, and we are a violent society and lots of people have written about that, obviously a history of racial violence, history of lynchings, all kinds of extrajudicial violence and things like that. So I don't want to um, obscure that. But yes, I mean, the kind of um, ubiquity of guns is a good indication of um, a metastasizing problem.
1: Yeah. Um, I had one little question I just wanted to ask you about. Um, because you sprinkle in my pals, the Federalists, throughout. <laughs> and I, I I, love me some Federalist papers. Yes. Um, and of course, you, you pulled an, early on, you have the quote from Federalist 51. But you do talk about the balancing that Hamilton and Madison discuss in quite a few between, on one side, energy. Um, which I, I, another abstraction that I often have to wrestle my students into understanding. And on the other side, Republican liberty. And, and so I, I take 37, Federalist 37, as the sort of structure for this, which also built in stability um, into the equation. Um, but then I get to this question of where Republican liberty is supposed to be protected in the system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: which is the House.
2: Right. Right. What are we going to do about the House? Which is a little stagnant. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I, and I, too, love me some Federalist Papers, so I appreciate your sharing that. And um, I think you know uh, that I am an advocate for increasing the size of the House of Representatives. And that is in order that representatives be close to their constituents again. And I think that actually yields both energy and protection of Republican liberty. It's sort of a paradox that those things go together, but they do. Um, So, you know, I think that's where, for me, those design principles in the Federalist Papers are really important to understand as principles. Um, I think, you know, by definition, the kind of structure that we've built in this country, it, it can never just be built once and for all. It has to be perpetually evolved which the founders understood perfectly well. They were under no illusions that there would be, you know, they knew there would be need for change over time. So at any rate, it's therefore almost more important for me as an educator to try to teach those design principles than to teach the sort of specific structures that we happen to
1: have. Um, so, uh, Well, I appreciate that. Cause that, that also helps me into a conversation with my students about like, if the House is really kind of ridiculously incumbency-oriented and, and gerrymandered, then then it's not doing its job, so we need to figure out how to get it back to doing its job.
2: Exactly. That's right. And the good news is, right, it's not just, you don't just have to look at the House itself to get it back to doing its job. So I'm also an advocate for uh, getting rid of party primaries, um, and I'll be writing about that actually in some upcoming columns in the Post. Haven't haven't done that stretch of columns yet. That's what's coming. But the important point is just that different parts of our system are connected to each other, right? And sort of seeing all those interconnections, that's important to figuring out the redesigns.
1: Um, so I wanted to ask you, because this is an incredibly thoughtful book and um, provides a lot of guidance for thinking about not only democracy, but you know, human interaction in society, which is what we hope for to be successful and human. Um, So what might you be working on next? (laughs) Oh
2: my goodness. That's too funny. Uh, No, I mean, I'm honestly taking a bit of a break from a writing point of view. (laughs) So um, I'm working on putting the ideas into practice is a short answer. So I am really working on democracy renovation as an active practice. Um, yes, there is ongoing research, I have a lab, I have terrific students um, working on all kinds of things, and the lab is really working hard right now on issues of democratic governance, of artificial intelligence, for instance. So there's lots of work, um, and I'm really grateful to be doing it with many other people. Um, and I think if I my overarching preoccupation is actually achieving some of the redesigns that we need for healthy democracy in the 21st century.
1: So you're going to be both a scholar and a practitioner.
2: Yep, exactly. I think I have been that for a spell now, and I think that's a, that's the uh, role I will inhabit till they carry me out.
1: <laughs> well, Danielle Allen, I would like to thank you for joining me today on the New Books in Political Science podcast to talk about justice by means of democracy, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023, I assume. Uh, one can buy this at the University of Chicago website. Do you have a brick and mortar store that you would like to give a shout out to?
2: Well, I always love Powell's. When people can go find a Powell's bookstore, that's a terrific thing to do. Um, so that is not here for me in Boston, but for everybody has got a Powell's, um, yep, yeah, head, head to Powell's. So. All right. Thank
1: okay. you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank
2: you, Lily. It's, it's been a real treat. I appreciate your great questions. Thanks.